Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We are your hosts, Stanton, Christie, and Cody. Liberty lovers alike share common values, a principle of limited government, a belief in the fundamental equal dignity and rights of all people, and an enduring sense that freedom is not only an effective foundation for society, but a moral one. However, there are times when we can have serious disagreements with real impact on not only policy, but the movement for freedom itself. Our second foray into these great debate episodes is going to be intellectual property. Our first was immigration. Today is going to be intellectual property, which just recently had a Supreme Court case that we're going to be talking about today. But before we do that, our random question of the episode, Christy and Cody, when making eggs, what's your go-to format? Scrambled, over easy, hard-boiled, deviled eggs. What's your preferred style? This is the most random, random question of the I day. I told you it was definitely. Really we, we had a very relevant one last week with, <laughs> with Chrissy's chairwomanship, and now we're going straight into random, like to, to like the chaotic random. We're only on episode 15, and Stan's already running out of ideas. <laughs> hey, you know what? I, you know what? I could ask what your favorite word is. I have that for next time. Oh, defenestration. Oh, very, oh like very, very clear, very right on point. Yeah, I'll save wow. my explanation for la- for next time. <laughs> I, I like that. Let's get into your egg form, your egg preference. Uh, I'm an over easy kind of guy. I, I like I like egg yolk. I like smash it up and put it on toast. I don't know. I'm an over easy kind of guy. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Naturally, I am not. I would be. <laughs> I like scrambled eggs, but it all depends on who I'm cooking for. Every single person in my house has a different request for their kind of egg. So no kidding. Yes. I can See, cook them all. You're a good mom. Cause like, <laughs> I feel like I didn't have a request for eggs when I was a kid. I had eggs and <laughs> eggs. the way they were prepared was the way that I enjoyed them. <laughs> that sounds about right. That's great. I, I have, um, whenever, so, uh, occasionally, um, my wife, Anna, she'll go to visit her uh, folks in Missouri and she'll go by herself. That's not a big deal. And she'll go for like two, three weeks because she can work remotely um, and I'll stay home and I have to teach. And so she's the, she's the the cook of the household. She loves making dinner. So I'm like, I got to feed myself. So I have been, a, I have mastered the, the, the seven minute four egg omelet, just <laughs> throw it onto the pan, wow. add a, some salt and pepper, add some uh, onions, maybe a cup, maybe a couple of the vegetables might have let it sit at medium high flip it over fold it in put some sriracha sauce on it good to go it's full dinner nice just done. full bachelor mode oh full <laughs> full bachelor every once in a while i might i might make myself something nice like you know spaghetti <laughs> but omelets are just it's just the protein more more protein per pound it's 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 just it's perfect Okay, there is absolutely no segue from eggs to intellectual property. I can't think of anyone except don't put your eggs in one basket. That doesn't even work. There's 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 no natural segue I mean, here. Well, so Stanton, what would you say if somebody else now that you've t- told your process for making a four egg omelet <laughs> just decided that they were going to go ahead and make their omelets that way and start selling them that way for for in perpetuity. Try, try and patent my omelet making process. That <laughs> that would be that would be strange. Um, so wow, I didn't think we could segue, and Cody has done it. So if I patent it, uh, a patent is one example of what we call intellectual property. Um, like with immigration, I want us to have a nice, clear definition for everyone and for ourselves. 
When we're talking about intellectual property or what's called IP, uh, it's the idea that, or it's, let me rephrase, it's the concept that a person can own an original idea, right? If you come up with the idea for an invention or you develop a new medical drug or you write a magnificent symphony or a book, you can claim the idea as your own. And when we say that this is property, it means that the replication of your idea in the physical world is controlled by you. No one can republish or manufacture your work without your permission. I mean, after all, it's your property. You get to decide what happens to it as you see fit, okay? When we say that you have a new invention or a new process or a new method or a new ingredient, we say that that's covered by what's called a patent. If you write something like a symphony or music or a book or poem, you get what's called a copyright. Um, now, the debate on intellectual property between um, what I'll call your uh, your standard opinion and then your more – Cody, what should we call this? I don't know. I, I'm going to get lambasted either way. So we can <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it the non-standard opinion, right? The standard and the non-standard. Your standard opinion goes like this. Intellectual property is very real. It's just as real as the land that you homestead. Um, ideas should be protected um, through, through law, right? There should be a government protection for property, just like anything else. Um, patents and copyrights are totally justified. Okay, they're they're totally in the in in the uh, okay. It's a a valid purpose of government. On the other hand, the non-standard is that intellectual property is made up. And not just that government shouldn't protect it; that it's a made up thing. It's not real. It's not a actual thing. Um, patents and copyrights, for the non-standard opinion, are nothing more than government-sanctioned monopolies artificially strung up from the ether. Okay. Um, and today we're going to take these apart. There's kind of a third opinion that, um, that involves some, that, that, that says intellectual property is real, but requires some reform. Chrissy, I think you're kind of in this reformist camp of the standard opinion. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be correct. Let's see. Let's, let, let, let's hear it because I, I, I think I don't know. I, I have ideas for how I think IP law can be reformed, but I want to hear how you think IP law can be reformed. Well, so I'm going to guess that you're going to have more precise ideas that are going to be wonderful for anyone to take and run with. But I will say that generally speaking, I agree that there is such a thing as an intellectual property. I mean, you know, there was at some point some person who first, you know, invented a flying machine. There was at some point a first person who invented a telescope. There was, you know, an actual author of a novel that you um, read, uh, someone who actually invented a recipe for spaghetti or omelets or anything else we want to talk about. And so I think the idea that there is some ownership in your ideas and in the things that you create, it's perhaps unfair to certain types of people, I think, if we only say that tangible property that we can touch with our hands is the only thing we can own. I think the products of our minds cannot always be measured by things we can touch. And so that's one of the reasons I agree with the concept of intellectual property. And if the purpose of government is to protect rights in property, then it can extend to less um, touchable, tangible property as well. However, in a modern world, I think if we don't reform the idea, the more we get into a technologically advanced world when so many products are created based on ideas and so many ideas can be built on when we talk about code and computers and um, analysis of novels and literary works, I think when there's too many restrictions, you limit the ability of other people to create their own ideas. And I would argue that that reform would even throw back to the original intent of the constitution when it discusses the purpose of copyright and patents. It actually, I'll quote it, it says, it is to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. That's in article one, section eight, clause eight. And so it is to recognize and provide people a way to capitalize on their work, but not to the exclusion of others' inventions. 
One of the most uh, uh, compelling reasons uh, or compelling arguments I've heard for uh, that, that intellectual property exists um, is that, you know, we, we think of property as the fruit of our labor and we own that because we own our labor, but our labor is meaningless without the direction of our mind. And so if we own our mind, then we should also own the ideas that flow from our mind. And that, that's been one of the more, one more compelling things that I've heard about, um, which is why, as you mentioned, the Founding Fathers put that clause in to protect that. And you know, from an economic point of perspective, it makes sense to, to one degree. You know, If you protect inventions, new inventions, and if you protect uh, songs, you give people incentives to invent more, to, uh, to write more songs. You give them incentive, because they're going to have a little bit not monopoly to profit off of that. Not forever, but for a long time. And that encourages more and more creativity. Now, Cody, you Does just kind of, you kind of, yeah, you just gave me a little, little twink of the, uh, uh, of the eyebrow. Let's, what do you think? Okay. So first uh, I am fully acknowledging that, you know, patents and copyrights are constitutional under section eight, clause eight. It's a congressional power. Um, I, this is somewhere where as a constitutionalist, I understand what they were getting at. Um, and I think in the, as a constitutional lawyer, if I was dealing with this, I would be in the reform camp. However, as an idealist, um, I'm not convinced that the basis is there. So um, the, the trouble I have with the term intellectual property isn't this idea that there are people that invent things and create things and make books and all of that. That is beyond obviously true. My question is with the property label, because property implies certain things, right? It implies ownership. It implies exclusive use. It implies right to exclude. And these are things that I don't know can apply to ideals, and I don't, and I definitely don't think that there should be a government sanctioned monopoly on a lot of these sorts of things, right? Because at the end of the day, what you're saying is, if I copy your book, then government gets to kill me because they can enforce it at the end of <laughs> just the look on Stanton's face. <laughs> I mean, every, everything about government is enforced by the end of a barrel of a gun, but I wasn't expecting it to go that quickly. Yeah, I, I jump your book six steps. Just, <laughs> just skip every other process. Yeah, I jumped a lot of steps there, guys. Our, our people have been listening for 15 episodes. They know the like... If I copy your book, you can enforce it against me. If I refuse the judgment, they can come and arrest me. If I refuse to arrest, they can use force. If I refuse the force, they can kill me in the interaction. And it is right, lawful right. sanctioned use of force. <laughs> that was like an entire lesson on government of force in m under 10 seconds. <laughs> uh, we, 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 can do Roth, we can do Rothbard's anatomy of the state later. <laughs> That's the encore. Oh. Um, so, yeah. I, and... And I think there's a, there's moral considerations here. There's a bunch, but in the economic sense, I think there's there's two cases that you can look at. And there's a lot of of people that have written about um, the arguments against IP and whatnot. So I'm not going to be saying anything new here, but hopefully I can condense it and kind of present it in this. But um, so knowing my audience, I'm guessing that both of you guys have copies of Aristotle on your bookshelf. Am I right? Sadly, not me. Christine sure doesn't have no. Aristotle. You got Plato? Nope. Uh, the ethics. Aquinas? And the founding fathers. Hey, you got, you must know. have Aquinas. No. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Well, so so Stanton pulled ethics on, off of his bookshelf. Stanton, do you know where I'm going with this? There, There's no copyright on that. That's not a copyrighted work. But was it printed by a publisher and purchased by you? So... Is there truly this an economic bar to creating works that are that then republished later on without copyright protections? I, and there's another famous example. If you look at um, Tolkien, right? There was this issue with his American edition of the Lord of the Rings where it wasn't, wasn't copyrighted in America. There was a, uh, an unapproved version that came out you know, then Tolkien was finally able to release approved version and everything he did in America was like, buy the approved version, buy the approved version, even though it was more expensive. And overwhelmingly, the approved version outsold the unapproved version. Mm 
because Tolkien's readers wanted to support Tolkien and not the unapproved part. So I don't think that this is this slam dunk consideration of, oh, well, obviously it's better for the market for there to be a government sanctioned monopoly. Because really what this is, is, I mean, not only is it a government sanctioned monopoly, it's a form of kind of price control around certain goods and it's exclusive market access for certain people or it's exclusive market provision for certain people. And in all other aspects, we push back against that idea. But for some reason, we're so willing when it comes to IP to just say, well, obviously, like it incentivizes R&D, so, or it incentivizes creativity. But in all other things, we, we disagree with that concept at a base, or in almost all other things, we disagree with that concept at a base level like utilities, right? We, that we had that exact same discussion. So I, I think that we're assuming, I think we're eye penciling here. I think we're assuming that this is just the right solution because it's the way it's always been done without actually looking at market effects, without actually looking at benefits that would be provided. And so that's my big problem. One of my big problems. It I is, have it lots is, of problems. I mean, it is, I mean, it is strange. I mean, one of the unique aspects about intellectual property um, probably the, the defining factor in this argument is it's non-physical characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you own your house as your property, but the government doesn't need to give you, I mean, the, the most the government gives you is like a title, mm-hmm. right? That declares that this is your property, but the title is less of a, a government, Hey, we're saying that this is yours more of a, you already have this. We're just recognizing it. Whereas it feels like the patent and the copyright is more of a, the government creates this declaration rather than it just the pre-existence. Now, I, I want to circle back to the economics discussion later because I think it's important, but I think the more critical thing to talk about is the definition of property because this is really what it gets what it gets into. Cody, you mentioned the idea it has to be exclusive it has to be what else you say uh there's a well so the bundle of sticks metaphor i think is problematic but there are a lot of things that comes along with property ownership which is right to use benefit right to put to beneficial use um, exclusive ownership right to exclude right to contract those are all things that are inherent in property ownership and an idea can't be exclusive that's where i think that there's a big problem is that ideas are like universal. It's, it's a thought. It's a, and yes, it is the fruition of a long process, but it is um, ethereal. It is not, because it is not tangible. It's so one, it's difficult for, by getting a patent, really what you're proving is that you were first but you're not even proving that you were first. You're proving that you got to the office first to get your patent. And yes, I know there's ways to fight against it if you could prove earlier in time, but you have to prove to the government that you were early in time. That doesn't mean that you were actually the first person to think of it. It means you were the first person to think of it, have documentation that you thought of it and prove that to the government. But you can have individuals that had that idea 30 years earlier and never wrote it down. But this is where I might agree with Christy here. That might be true for patents, maybe, but I'm going to be very, very, very frank here. There's no way in God's green earth that I'm going to have, I don't think anyone could have the mind of Tolkien to write Lord of the Rings. It's such a unique idea that, yeah, anyone could have come up with it, but no one did. He did. I mean, Chrissy, am I I wrong in thinking that way? No, I think you're right, actually. And I think... I mean, well, Cody makes a good case for what you think, Cody. Um, I actually see a lot of similarities between the arguments you're making and property. I mean, like actual land. There's a lot of people who would say, okay, so you were the first person to go to the government and purchase this piece of land, especially when you talk about like very early America, or the first person to go and settle this land, but there are actually people who were there before you. Like what gives you the right to this piece of the earth that belongs to all humans um, you're, you're not the only person just because you beat them to the government door that has a right to it. So like, I guess I think those issues are inherent in any kind of property, or at least you could make the argument that those issues are inherent in any type of property discussion, not necessarily unique to intellectual property. Um, and I don't think, oh, sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. Actually go for it. 
I so here's the two problems. I don't think that you can prove exclusive dominion over an idea. And I don't think that you can demonstrate um, exclusion of use without government intervention. So by inhabiting or using property, you have the exclusive use of that property. It is very clear that you are exclusively using it to the detriment of it or detriment. And I mean, in their inability to use it to the detriment of everybody else. And you have a natural right to defend what is yours. You don't need the government involved. To However, be, to oh, be sorry, to be fair, to be fair, only, to be fair. <laughs> thank you. Sultan for um, the only way that I can control my landed property is by force as well. Otherwise people can walk on as they see fit. So exclusivity is backed by force one way or the other private or public by not, individual force without government intervention. I'm not I mean, sure now I you even, need to involve government, but <laughs> I don't know that I even necessarily buy that exclusivity like is essential for property ownership though. I'm not sure. I I think there can be. I think that's true with many kinds of property, but I don't think it's necessarily a definition that like has to be inherent to own something. Because I think there's plenty of things that are like collectively owned or there's shared ownership. I mean, even if you look at this is potentially a silly example, but look in <laughs> Cody's like, yes, yeah, it's definitely a silly example. Uh, <laughs> but if you look at like HOAs or neighborhoods or uh, <laughs> if only everyone could see your face, uh, but like the shared strips of land, or sometimes when you have, like you go to a beach community and there's all this shared portion of the beach that isn't open to the public, but it really doesn't belong only to one person. And I guess I would relate ideas more to something like that. And this is why I'm more in the reform camp. I think if you are the first one to I would agree with many ideas. You're not going to be the only person ever on earth in the entire history of the world to ever come up with that idea or that invention. But you may have been either the first or the first to communicate your idea effectively to society or government. I think perhaps your copyright or patent should be like shortened, basically like reform it, give you enough time to capitalize on your idea, market your idea, make money off your idea, uh, because you did actually do some work deserving of recognition but then perhaps that idea should be freed into space uh, for other people to build on. And in my view, that would fulfill the, the intent of the constitution, but also recognizing that ideas are not 100% exclusive because another person will come up with it at some point. Before Cody responds, I just want to let everyone know, a patent lasts for 20 years. A copyright lasts the lifetime of the author plus 70 years. So copyrights are far longer and, and, and far more significant. Um, and once they expire, they enter in, into what's called the public domain. We just want to make sure we're clear on that so everyone has this kind of idea of expiration and shortening that, that timeline. Yeah. Thank you. So two things. One what you're talking about with exclusivity with like a community owning a beach is exclusivity. Cause you said that a community owns it, but not the public, mm -hmm. which means, so I'm not talking about individual exclusive ownership, but you have exclusivity, meaning you as a group, as an individual own something and you have the right to keep other people from using it. So for example, right. You and your husband probably own your house as tenants in common. You you both joint tenancy. Oh, property mm -hmm. law. It's been a minute. <laughs> You're okay. Um, <laughs> You're so, yeah. So you yeah. both own your home, right? That, But it's still exclusive to you. I have no ownership share in your house. I have no right to your home. You can, if I knock on the door and after this episode, maybe you can tell me to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so no. it's that exclusive use, but you can't have that with ideas. If you put down an idea in a book and I read your book, I have that idea in my brain. You have no ownership over what's in my mind just because you, and so we're even getting outside of the, the two people at the same time problem, which I think is a huge problem. We're getting into big time philosophical uh, apology. <laughs> a little bit, right? But like, yeah. so you have no right to anything that's in my brain. And so I have actually over me that people can't see, I have a couple patents for firearms that are fairly famous. 
I can look at these patents. They are in my brain. That's in my head is not owned by anything else. Now, here's the other thing you're doing is you're stopping me then from using what's in my head to do something in the real world. You are preventing me from using a knowledge and an idea that I have from interacting with the real world and using my labor to benefit my life. Well, so, I mean, but like you didn't, and I agree with you that you can't, you know, take the knowledge from someone else's brain that does then belong to you. But I'd argue that the idea doesn't belong to you because you didn't create the idea. Basically, you memorized my idea or you memorized like the patent that's on your wall. And so I would say the ownership is not so much in the idea, but like the use of the idea, perhaps, because I don't I would agree that ideas are not per se exclusive, but like the use of the idea, I think that maybe perhaps is more the issue. Like, can you own the, um, what do you call it? The reproduction of it or the selling of it, the marketing of it. Like, is that more what the ownership interest is in rather than the idea itself? Well, and so that's where I think you get into a slippery slope, right? So I, I, I would argue you absolutely cannot own an idea that's in my brain. If you have freely put it in the world, I have learned it. Even if I've memorized it, um, I can, quote firefly very extensively but i did not write that script so <laughs> in truth in truth i think chris is absolutely right that patents and copyrights don't monopolize ideas they monopolize the physical reproduction of those ideas yes so the next step though is if you agree that i own an idea in my brain what you're saying is then i can't make something which means you're telling me an idea I have in my brain, I cannot use to better my life. You are controlling my labor. Except I would argue, I don't think patent law necessarily would, or copyright law even necessarily prohibits you from copying it or invent or making it for your own use, but you can't go sell it. And I think I, that's, you can't go make it and give it to someone else because, and so, I guess where it goes so to you're, your right. So you're okay so you acknowledge that you don't own the idea. Mm-hmm. You acknowledge that I can probably make it for myself. I but, think there's no enforcement of that prohibition. So yeah. I'd say but can. so then the line is that I can't trade a good that I made to another individual for something that I value over that good. Yes. Because you pretty much stole it from me. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. That's, and that's where my line is. That's where my problem is because and we're making a big jump here, Right. But basically what you're saying is you can control my labor. And anytime you have government stepping in controlling someone's labor, that's when I have a problem because I don't, I don't trust that the government has the best interest of the people at heart at all times, right? And that's the problem is I trust the market over government in many situations. So at this base level, if you can't own what's in my brain. You can't prevent me from making things that are in my brain. I don't understand why we draw the line at I can't trade another individual that object for something I value. Well, I think it's because it's government's obligation. I don't think government's targeting you and saying, I love how we've made this like a, you know, you and me, like you're doing it again. Stanton is, again, no one can, <laughs> this is a real visual episode. Maybe someday we'll move on. But Stanton is literally sitting back with a very interested look on his his face. And he is taking this all in very deeply. <laughs> I, no, I, I very have, funny. For those who know me, um, I've got my Han Solo, my Han Solo pose, hands hey. behind the head, just just leaning <laughs> back. Oh, uh, we have to be we have to be careful. We have a Tolkien reference, a Firefly reference, and a Star Wars reference in one episode. Mm. I think we've hit our quota. Going down the rabbit trails. Who, who else is so happy for copyrights that we can we can? <laughs> uh, the Geisel Estate. They aren't they one of the ones that helped extend the protections on copyrights? Doctor uh. Seuss. I think so. Yeah. Anyway, but, I interrupt you, so Chrissy. My point is, I think, I mean, and I'm not a fan of government interference in people's lives at all. I'm a Republican. I believe in small government. Very, very, very small government. But I think the deal is that it's not, it's, it's the lens through which you view it. And I don't view it. The government is targeting you or anyone else who wants to use their labor to make a profit or to put something good into the world. I think you, you can view it through that lens. And if you do, then you view the government as slamming people down and targeting them. Or you can view it as the government offering 
protection, the same protection it would offer to your idea as it would to mine or your reproduction of your idea. Um, and they're basically saying in order to promote the interests of people spreading their good ideas around the world and making innovations and bettering society as a whole, we are going to protect everyone's idea, I mean, equally, presuming you take the right steps, we can argue about inequality and <laughs> accessing those steps, but the re the foundation of it anyways is equal equal protection of all people's ideas so you in in my view instead of someone wanting protection for creating something that someone else actually made up and you're just constantly copying someone else's ideas i think the current standard on patent and copyright empowers you to go produce your own ideas innovate yourself make society better by uh, putting your own ideas into the world instead of copying someone else's and I actually think that standard protects people's rights and empowers society to be more innovative. I, uh, I don't think that people are going to stop innovating and stop providing market options to individuals if copyright and patents disappeared tomorrow. That's not going to stop innovation. People still want to offer things to the market. People still want to make money. People still want to better their lives. It's just creating a, a kind of this fictitious monopoly that's sponsored by government. And I would argue in many instances, it actually creates problems with the development of society. Because if you've got things that are you know, patented for 20 years, that means that's 20 years of non-innovation because you can't use that, produce it, and then have a market competition to produce something better. So you've got this artificial 20-year stopgap on a lot of products. And it's not necessarily as true anymore when we look at um, code and tech because fair use um, exemptions, which allows people to use certain things for public good, blah, blah, blah. Right. Those have been expanded greatly. Mm -hmm. But what you're doing is you're, you're delaying innovation because you're preventing the market from becoming, right? I mean, so market, right? A new idea is introduced. Therefore, people pay money for the new idea. A competitor is introduced, which either does it better or does it cheaper, which then inspires another person to introduce a new idea, which does it better or cheaper. That's market innovation. Well, if you install a 20-year gap on that, that means you have 20 years that you get to profit off of one idea and the market can't make it cheaper or the market right. can't make it better because they can't use that idea as their, their they can improve upon it, but there's limitations on it. There's federally imposed limitations. So I think it actually deters the net public benefit by imposing these stop gaps. And like, like I know it's different with copyright, but I, I mean, did, so Shakespeare wrote a lot of original works, whomever Shakespeare was. I love uh, the, the, to be fair, he also ripped off a lot of older works than him. So let's just be very, very, very clear here. And that's exactly where I'm going. The themes in Shakespeare aren't new. The works that like he ripped off a ton, but that doesn't mean that what he offered to society isn't a net benefit. So are you going to throw? So the first time Shakespeare produces a play that's arguably similar to another play, are you going to stop Shakespeare, throw him in jail? And then society is now better off because we jailed Shakespeare. <laughs> I mean, this, this is something that I've, that I've been trying to think. So I, I tend to agree with you, Cody, on most on those patent things, right? Those inventions, right? The things that enter into the marketplace uh, very much on a buy-sell thing. And that not to say that art and poetry and literature isn't bought and sold, but there seems to be more of a, uh, the, the, the creator aspect behind copyright. The idea that truly uh, the, I, you know, it, when I read Shakespeare, or when I read um, Tolkien or any, or anything like that, uh, it's in my head, but it's still not my idea. And I, and I have, a, I have a, a, a and I, 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 I don't know how to think about this either. So don't, don't think of this as just being facetious. I truly am not sure that the bringing of the idea into my mind makes it mine because there's still no way that I can come up with that idea. I, the only way that the idea exists is because of someone else. It was not born of my original thought. So to say that it was my idea, I, I think the the understanding of the idea belongs to me. Again, 
ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry. We're getting into really weird, abstract <laughs> questions. I think we're going to move on here just momentarily, but I, I want to parse this one out because I think it's important. I'm not convinced that I can own the idea or, or, or that I even have the, 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 I don't think I can own an idea. I think someone, I think people can own ideas. I don't think I can own the ideas that come out of Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit. Now, that's, that's, that's that's fake. That there's no, but that's not, you're, you're ascribing something to it. That's external of it. You own everything that's in your brain. It's your brain. Yes. But 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 it's not really an, an original idea. Like I agree. There's a difference in like an original idea and the, uh, absorption of knowledge. Like you've Nothing memorized you have you in have your that. head is an original idea. Here, Everything here. is based on theft. Hold, hold, well, okay. Hold, hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. <laughs> the, so there's something in IP law. There's this legal doctrine called fair use. And fair use is generally the here's – the, here's the basics. I can – own the right, according to intellectual property law, I can own the right to say Harry Potter, right? I'm, I'm JK Rowling. I can own the right to the story, the plot line, the characters, the, the names of the spells. I can own all of that. I cannot own the story structure itself. If someone else wants to write a story about, um, a, a boy who discovers magical powers and learns it from a, an academy of, of spellcasters. You might be borderline infringing on J.K. Rowling's plot, but the general idea is that I don't have ex- exclusive control over spells and wizards and witchcraft. That 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 is a plot line is not there. I mean, for God's sake, uh, Star Wars is based off of the the hero's journey, which is spread throughout all of of human history and story. So like the story structure can't be owned, but the specific plot can. Um, The reason I bring this up is because there are ways to take ideas from others and rework them so that they become something new and original unto itself. That's largely what I think Shakespeare did. That's different than taking Shakespeare work and publishing it as my own. I think there's a f- substantial difference between the two, Cody. Uh, yeah, and and I think copyright is a lot tougher than patents. Um, I, I think that's fair. Um, my biggest problem uh, when it comes to copyright specifically is that you're interjecting the government involved. And it's not like you're interjecting the government in a life and death scenario. You're interjecting government when you're talking about, you know, um, a monetary gain. And so I'm more hesitant there. And I think I, the problem is then you get into these crazy scenarios like we have now where, you know, there's a famous legal case over a, a company that provides uh toys to young women that are incentivized to get them into the STEM field. And they used a rather famous song that was more derisive of women from the 1980s by a popular band called the Beastie Boys. Uh, And the song was girls. And they used a parody-ish version of it in a commercial. And then you get years and years of protracted litigation over all of these crazy things because they used the tone, but then they changed the words. But was it actually a transformative purpose I'm using air quotes because transformative is one of the legal terms here. Um, and so, and the punishment there is, is fines, but potentially incarceration, potentially, you know, arrest, potentially enforcement at the end of a gun. And I don't know if that's the right solution. And is government better equipped to handle that than the market? No, so, so, so that's a good, that's a good point. Right. And so, so let's take this, more or less anarchic path, right? There are ways to enforce real property rights without government, right? The idea of the homesteading principle, right? You, that, yeah. we, that, that's clear. Why can't we apply that to intellectual property? Because the, the so I, I, basically what I want to do is I want to get you to argue why the original idea can't be property without the mention of government. Because if you and I both agree that we can have property rights without government, why can't 
Shakespeare's work or J.K. Rowling's work be property? I I come back to this problem of can you own an ethereal concept? And again, I think this is harder, and I think it's a much harder question when you're talking about property rights versus patents. Um, but this right to ownership and exclusive use is different when you're talking about ideals. Uh, when you're talking about a book, I think you have a much stronger case. Um, and it's it's a lot harder to argue that there is not true ownership there. And I guess at that point, my argument is more of just kind of the 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 transitional of I want the smallest version of government possible. Right. And this is probably where if we're sitting down over and over a podcast or over a drink, I'm you're probably <laughs> going to get me on your side eventually, especially with the constitutional basis. Um, I'm probably going to eventually come over to your side on copyright. I just don't. Why would we put that? So you're right. So let's say Shakespeare does own his work. Just like there's a there's a way to have property without government, why do we need copyright? Well, so so that that's a great question. And I, and I think I think the copyright discussion is separate from the discussion of whether or not intellectual property even exists, right? Because yeah, and my my big push there right is with the property sentence. The mm-hmm. the word property has a very strong legal definition that has been litigated for 200 years. And so the property in there is where I have a problem. I don't necessarily think that I mean you can attribute an original idea to an individual, right? So I, I was joking before that you, you know, all of your ideas are theft, that you don't own it. No, I, I, I that's get not it. I thought, I thought it was a clever argument. <laughs> it's not necessarily true. It just means everything that you are doing is based off of your perceptions, your education, your reading, your lived experience, right? There is an absolute natural true out there. But the ideas that you're talking about are all based off of experiences in your interaction with that What's natural the phrase, true. Good art is stolen art, or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. all all good art is is yeah. stolen, right? And like I, with paintings, right? The original sells for far more than any reproductions ever do. So I I will want I do want to so because I want to move on to to uh, to the law to the lawsuit that we that we discovered today. Um, but before I do here. I'm going to try and bridge this chasm here, more or less. Um, Chrissy, I, I tend to think that intellectual property is is possible. I'm not sure if intellectual property is as real as landed property, but I'm inclined to agree that, yeah, absolutely. Shakespeare owned his work. J.K. Rowling owns her work. However, I also own a printing press in ink. And I should be allowed to print. I, I should be able to take an assortment of letters and paper and binding and put them together in such a format that it looks identical to Harry Potter. Now, here's what I don't think I'm allowed to do. I don't think I'm allowed to say written by Stanton Skirjanic. To me, that's fraud. And that is absolutely yes. out the window. I think I have to put down written by J.K. Rowling. I can't t- I can't sell this arrangement of letters and in ink as my own, but I should be able to sell that book so long as I make the acknowledgement that it was not my work because the ink, the paper, the binding, it's my property. I should be able to do with it whatever I want so long as I don't hurt someone else, um, someone else physically. But well, beyond fraud, I don't see why yeah. I can't do that. So I, I, I am <laughs> yes, I'm with you. Intellectual yeah. property might might be real, but I'm with Cody. I also have other property mm-hmm. rights. And when those two rights come so, to conflict, I don't know if government's the right one to resolve it. So I'll just say, I am glad you have such a strong position against fraud. That is great to hear, but <laughs> I suspect it's no less. However, so I think it comes down to a measurement that I actually very much like doing these kind of analysis in law because it's very involved in constitutional rights. When basically you have to measure, we both have a right, but when does your right infringe on my right? And I think that's really what this comes down to a measure of. If you have a right to use your tools and your materials and your supplies, and I have a right to do something with this idea or story that I created or invention, our rights are in conflict. If you want to take my intellectual property, if we're going to assume such a thing exists, 
and you want to sell it and make yourself some money. Well, you making money off something I created does infringe on my right to make more money off the thing that I created. So I think that because people are not perfect and people do not always look out for the best interests of each other, um, and, and nor does government, obviously, but that's why I think you have to have some sort of arbiter that can step in between the infringement of people's rights and make a decision to who has the better and bigger right. And this is, and I, and I think this is really the disagreement. And I think this is the, this is the disagreement that can't be resolved in that one side says that the proper arbiter is the market. And the other arbiter says that the proper, that, that the proper arbiter is some limited government. And, and there's right. no way, there's no way that that can be like bridged without just like a constant grinding right. away of one mm-hmm. side or the other, which in True. an hour of podcasts mm-hmm. we can't quite do, but <laughs> I think that's, that's, that's the ultimate decision. Cause yeah. you know, I, I think I should be able to make a bag that has Coco Chanel's uh, uh, logo. I think I should be able to do that. People aren't going to buy it because they know it's a fake and the original in the marketplace is going to outdo me, but I think I should have the right to do that. But Again, that's because I think the market might be a better arbiter than government. I mean, it is. There is tons of fake Louis. I know exactly how to spot a fake Louis. Like, it's super easy. <laughs> I'm glad that, you do because I can't. Still, oh, so Louis won't ever cut their logo in half on their fabric. So if you see, but cheap knockoffs don't like wasting fabric. So if you look at a Louis and it's cut through the logo, it's fake. There's other ways too, but that's the easiest. I'm I'm very glad that you don't know ask this. how I know that. I, I was going to say an interesting life. <laughs> I'm a I'm an enigma wrapped in a mystery, shrouded in <laughs> perplexion, but. I know you're trying to move on, Stan, and I'm going to just my one pause that I would offer is Mm -hmm. I know you're offering that kind of as the um, devil's advocate, but that's really your what you just articulated is where I come out on kind of this copyright issue is government can't stop. No individual can stop me from using my tools and my labor to better my life as long as it's not hurting another person. And I think where I would draw the line with what Christy is talking about is as soon as you published that work and you put it out into the public, I think you have made it a part of the public domain. Um, so I think fraud is is a huge possibility for a solution here, but- Would you say much, that a book or, or an invention is a public accommodation? Oh, geez. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry, no. Sorry that was- but, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think, I think we should caveat this conversation as well as like much like the, you know, I took the more moderate position on immigration because of the pragmatic approach. I think this is very similar, right? My position here is much similar to like when people come and ask about roads, if we're getting to the point where the last thing that we're trying to solve is like the length of a patent or how much government is involved in copyright, I'm retiring because we have solved We've done it. a lot of world problems already. <laughs> but I, I do think that there is a, a line there between controlling uh, people benefiting over their own labor. And that's where I get really concerned is where you put government involved of, of controlling people of the benefit of their labor and what comes out of their brain, even if it wasn't the first thing, right. first brain to come out of. Yeah. Well, one of the, to, one of there's, the most, a, there's a smart way to say that. There, there's a way. There's a way to phrase that. <laughs> one of the most unique uh, reform ideas I've heard behind patents is not to issue patents or copyrights, but to issue government bounties. That if you are the first to come up with an original idea, the government will pay you a bounty for it. But as soon as you do, it's immediately, it's immediately public domain. Now. This is a Jefferson idea or it wasn't this founded in like Jefferson's thought because he had this thing with like France where they were inventing a lot of really interesting ways to like store flour. And he was really upset that like, I don't know if he was really upset or if this is one of those emails (laughs) that you write to somebody and they're like, oh, I need your help. And you're like, oh, I would love to, but you know, I I have this obligation. So I don't know if Jefferson was making an excuse, but he was talking about um, using government funds to buy things and then releasing them into the, the public domain. I mean, that's, that's the, I mean, cause one of the, one of the interesting side effects of patents is that yes, you create, uh, this 20 year, uh, the, the, this, this 20 year monopoly, but then it's public domain, then it's open. And that's, and that's good. It, by patenting something, you guarantee public domain. If you don't patent, there's the risk that it never becomes public. Now that's not necessarily a problem, but Coca-Cola has never patented its formula. 
and they've been able to keep it a secret for decades, despite all the odds. Now, Pepsi comes along and offers something similar, but we all know that Pepsi just isn't quite Coca-Cola. And by, by having Coke had, has never had to send the government to kill somebody for making similar Coke. Fair enough. <laughs> My point being is that you do have this unintended side effect of patents of creating a very open public domain aspect. I think the bounty program would be kind of interesting. Um, it creates that incentive. Either collect the bounty but public domain or never collect the bounty and keep it secret forever if you can. But that's 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 neither here nor there. That's just kind of like an an interesting idea. Something that I want to do because we're we're gonna we're approaching an hour here pretty quickly. Um, and I want to give uh, our audience kind of a a tangible example of how of why patent law matters, why I where where, where the ideas of intellectual property matter. Um, just this week, the Supreme Court ruled on a case uh, called Google v. Oracle, or was it the other way around? Was it Oracle v. Google? Can't remember who was who was. Petitioning. I think you're right. Google, Google, Google v. Oracle. Um, the gist of this case, and I'll let Cody and Christy fill in the details. The gist of this case was that Google took 11,000 lines of code from Oracle and used it to develop um, basic, basically interoperability uh, design for its phones. They wanted people to, I think it was Java, people who used Java that they could program in Java for Google apps specifically for their phones, for Android. Um, that's the idea. Now, 11,000 codes is is a small fraction, but it's a lot, right? It's a lot of code that was developed by someone else. Um, and the essence of the case was that Orville said, that's copyrightable code. We own it. You owe us $8.8 .8 billion for using it without paying us pay up. And Google said, no, it's not copyrightable. And even if it is copyrightable, we should be able to use it under fair use. And the court today said, uh, today or yesterday, the court said, yes, it is copyrightable, but fair use, this idea that you can use something, even if it's a copyright, you can use it for other reasons. It is fair use, so Google doesn't have to pay up. And then you have, so this was a 6-2 decision. Um, Amy Barracona was not part of the case. 6-2 decision, and the dissent was led by uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. I'm losing my voice here, so I'm going to let Chrissy or Cody go on while I take a swig of water. <clears throat> no, you're right. Um, Thomas and Alito joined him in the dissent, and they basically found the opposite of the majority and believed that the majority didn't spend the time necessary to determine whether or not the portion of the code was in fact copyrightable. And then uh, Thomas kind of eviscerated the majority's argument on fair use and said that the way they applied the fair use doctrine was very contrary to the court's precedent on how they typically applied fair use doctrine, chiefly because they didn't consider uh, the market effect on basically how much money Oracle lost because of what Google did. And that was kind of nowhere found in the majority decision, even though that's one of the four factors in the fair use test. And then they also said that there wasn't a lot of consideration to Oh, shoot. What was the other thing? Ah, I'm going to lose my analysis of it. <laughs> I can't remember, but I do remember that Google tried yeah. to buy this code and Oracle said no. And so Google just said, they tried like four times. Anyway. And that's part of what Thomas pointed out too, is he said, clearly Google itself recognized that Oracle had a copyrightable ownership in this code because they tried to license it four times. And then finally, unlike Apple and Microsoft, who went and created their own code, Google just decided to hijack it, basically. <laughs> and so now taking off my idealist hat and putting back on my constitutional lawyer hat, you know, I think um, I think Thomas's, anal Thomas's analysis is more in line with the existing um, realm of copyright law. I think that he does a better job, as in most things, most. <laughs> um, does a better job analyzing the, the scenario. And I, you know, I think that I think there's actually a seventh amendment problem here where they start talking about, cause they put it to a jury. Um, the yeah. jury ruled in favor of Oracle and then it went up to the court of appeals and the court of appeals said, Oh no, it doesn't matter. This is actually a fair use is a question of law. 
And therefore we're going to rule as a legal matter and we're going to overrule the jury. So I actually think that there might be a seventh amendment problem here of, Hey, like this is a question that should appropriately be just determined by a a jury. Um, And I think one of the key factors here is exactly what Thomas points out, right? The fact that Google tried to, to engage in a contract to purchase this specific code on multiple different occasions. And then after contract negotiations fell through multiple times, they just used it. It to me shows that they did have some understanding there. And right. The other key here is this, like they try to draw and I am a lawyer people. I am not a programmer. So I apologize, but there's a difference here between like the call code and the actual code that the call allows you to bring up in a quick um, and effective scenario. And that's where basically the majority splits those and says that, oh, well, the major code might be, um, you know, you can divide these and you can't have, um, or it's fair use to use the call code. But what Thomas gets into is these are like inextricably linked because the call code is meaningless without the, the, the actual like implementing code, code. implementing code thing. Right. It's that, it's that whole story structure, right? That the court said the structure of the code is what was taken by Google, but not the actual specifics of how it's used where Clarence Thomas says that might be true, but code is linked so tightly. I think Thomas, I think he said that essentially you, this is, this, this straddles both patent and copyright Yeah, and Congress acting under the authority of the constitution said, this is copyright. We are going to protect it as copyright and here are the rules to do it. And, you know, cause, cause one of the things about, about, um, about Clarence Thomas is that he is a constitutionalist. So if he doesn't think it's in the constitution, it doesn't exist, but this is clearly in the constitution copyright law. Right. So he's definitely much deferring to Congress. And he's also a very much legal textualist. What does the text of the law say? It seems from my very layman perspective that the law is clear. Oracle should have a copyright to this. However, when I was looking at some other things, a lot, primarily the amicus briefs, a bunch of the programmers world said this kind of code specifically is not copyrightable because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, that, that, that it's, it's the, the structure of it, the, the mechanisms of how it works. This is, this is, this is something that anyone could have in their backyard, yeah. so to speak, in a metaphor. And this is, but, and, Cody, and Cody kind of made, made this point. None of those nine justices, nor any of their 15 or 20 uh, uh, clerks have a clue how mm-hmm. this works. And no. so they're all relying upon the programmer's intuition and uh, their, their expertise but that could the, the expertise could be biased if there is an industry wide desire to not copyright this. Now, oh, yeah. exactly. Code and I were over here. We're saying, yeah, mm-hmm. we like the result. None of this should be copyrighted. This is not, intellectual property doesn't exist. But as constitutionalists, like, uh, wait, what's going on here? Well, because I actually asked my husband about it because he is like a cybersecurity expert, but he also like programs a ton and understands. And it, funny enough, I, I asked him. I was like, so is there such a thing as declaring code and implementing code? And he's like, mm, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh shoot. I'm like, are those lawyer words to use and not actual programmer words? <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, it's not what we call it. I was like, oh man, of course that would, that would be in the Supreme court opinion. That'd be too easy. But, yeah, I know too, very too much too easy, but he did say, he was like, well, you know, regardless of whether or not this case is, you know, properly decided or not, he's like, there are a lot of programmers that are going to be very happy with this result because API interfaces and this kind of operational code. He said, for one thing, many developers make it free because like, they want it to be in the public domain. They want it to be built on, but the ones that don't obviously are trying to make money off of it. And he's like, so if it can no longer be copyrighted, there's going to be a lot of very happy programmers that are like, oh, great. I don't have to go create my own. I can build off of this. This so. makes a programmer's life very easy. They can just say, oh, yeah. hey, someone already did this. I'll take it and just do what I want, which to Cody and I's point is why we don't like intellectual property, which is why we don't like copyrights because it makes the marketplace easier, innovation faster, efficient, et cetera, et cetera. But if there is such a thing as intellectual property and copyrights valid, then this case right. seems to be a problem. Well, yeah. and that's well, one of the things that, too. yeah. And that's one of the things that I think Oracle, the the facts that the jury got to see also lended it, lended to it is that Oracle 
does offer this for free if you're going to just be using it in everyday life. But if you're going to be implementing it into something that you are selling on the market, that's when you have to enter into a contract. And the stated reason that Oracle didn't enter into a contract with Google was distrust. And I find that (laughs) so ironic. They're like, oh, well, we don't trust you guys. Like, oh, fun fact. We're going to go ahead and borrow that. But so the other side is, so we talked, I talked a lot about government force in my problems, but I think this highlights another problem with interjecting um, government into these questions is you have nine justices that just decided a case that allegedly resulted in, was it $8 billion in damages? And they don't understand code. They don't understand the inter. So they're relying on the arguments that are presented to them by the, the attorneys and amicus briefs could be, you know, could be great. It could be a subsection of a population that's presenting them as a much larger subsection or section of the population. So I think that's another problem. It's borderline judicial policymaking. A little bit, right? So, so yeah, you're, you're interjecting and anything that's in the constitution, if you uphold Marbury v. Madison can be decided by the Supreme Court, which means you're interjecting the Supreme Court in a lot of technical fields where they're not going to have a lot of expertise in. I think that lends itself to the seventh amendment problem as well of like, that's why we have juries. And that's why we have people of our peers that are deciding these issues. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that's another problem, right? Is you're, you're interjecting bureaucracy into a question that's better or is not in the realm of their uh, expertise. To me, this is one of those instances that doesn't happen very often, but this is one of those instances where Clarence Thomas is right as usual, but I don't want him to be. (laughs) (laughs) That just happened here and there. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of the things I say is like, I am a constitutionalist through and through. And sometimes it leads me to places that I I don't necessarily agree with or I don't like, but kind of like the conversation we had last week. Like, I don't think I could do it better. So I'm going to argue for it day in and day out. It's the contract that we are based on. I am here for it. But mm-hmm. as today evidence, sometimes I'm not sure that I'm uh, ideologically just permanently aligned with with everything. <laughs> Chris, any last comments on this before we do uh, speak out or um, shout see, out? How about oh, I you just will- scared me. Speak out? <laughs> No, sorry, sorry, not, that, no, not to cause trauma um, there. Well, I'll just say briefly, I'll take, I'll absorb my speak out time in this section to <laughs> give a shout out um, actually at this moment to my dad and my grandpa who is not actually with us anymore. But so he actually has a very interesting patent story. He created one of the devices that's used on airplanes today. He invented it um, that allows them to be found after a crash. He basically invented that the black box but, technology um see my dad texted me the name of it i'll pull it up but <laughs> this is how much i know aviation but anyway it's it's like it's a device that enables them to find it and he didn't file a patent and he was told you need to file a patent or you're going to lose the rights to this but the manufacturers were like but we need you to make a change because your device is too big so you need to take off the antenna portion and reduce the size and then we'll buy it from you and he and oh my goodness my grandpa was very much like this he was like oh no my invention is the best the way it is and i will not change it and i will not file a patent and so someone else came in and did what the manufacturer wanted and filed the patent and got the rights to produce this and sell this to all the aircraft companies so hey play by the system or don't, it's going to hurt you. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a bummer. I'm, that, that's actually really interesting. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Definitely send that to me. That'd be interesting. To look yeah. At. Well, Cody, I feel like this outs. just exposes the difference in Christy and mine's lives because I'm pretty sure like my great uncle uh, is attributed with inventing like the modern curling hack. <laughs> which wow, is very different. Hey. Like I'm More so Canadian. I am so Canadian. I'm sorry, guys. Like like the the like curling the sport with the stones. Yeah. So the thing that you push off of is called a hack. Um, the yeah. So allegedly he and I don't know if it was ever like patented or or whatnot, but uh, he was very well known in the community for having created it, and it was in. The Sioux Curling Rink, which is a very famous curling rink and a lot of famous Canadian curlers come out of. The Canadian national team has come out of there multiple times. Uh, so that's so a shout out to him for our, our patent and copyright episode. But also 
you know, I, I feel like the, the life-saving technology of identifying a downed aircraft might be more pragmatically beneficial. Um, however, I know a lot of people that really enjoy watching curling. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and call this one as a win for the family. <laughs> I'm, one those, I'm one of those curling fans. I don't know if I have any made. Oh no, I do. I have a, I have a shout out. Um, my, my good buddy, uh, Steve, he listens. Um, he calls me the idealist. He says, I like to think in a vacuum and not in the real world. So here you go, buddy. Here, here's your, uh, <laughs> He's here, here's another vacuum episode. episode. Here's, here's another vacuum thinking episode. Um, thank, thanks for listening. Um, so yeah, I think we, we, we've had a really good conversation today. Um, this is the second of our great debate series. We have one more. Um, we're going to hold on. We're not going to reveal what this one is. Um, because we want to leave this one as a surprise for everyone. Um, but we do know what we'll talk about next time. It will be self-evident and it will likely be forgotten. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SEF underscore pod, as well as Facebook. And you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you next time. Bye.